Well, if you have a Bible with you, let's open this morning to, as I said, the book of Kings, chapter 25, the very last chapter of Kings and the very last paragraph of Kings, 2 Kings 25. It is all over. There is nothing left. That's what we have in chapter 25. What began with so much promise 400 years prior to this chapter now lies in ruin. The nation of Israel, which are God's covenant people in the land of promise, are no more. The nation is destroyed. Jerusalem, the capital, is demolished. The temple, the dwelling of God, is a heap of ruins. There is no remnant. The people have been taken into captivity, exiled hundreds of miles away to a foreign nation. Where, where is the promise of God? At the end of this book. If you're an Israelite sitting in captivity in Babylon, where is the promise of God? Everything we believed. Where is his promise to redeem his people and to dwell in their midst? Where is his promise to bring salvation blessing to all the nations through the seed of Abraham? Where is his promise that David will have one on the throne forever to reign? The nation is no more. There's nothing left. That's what we saw last Sunday in 2 Kings chapter 25. That's how the book of Kings ends. Almost. Almost. The author adds... A rather unusual, somewhat cryptic appendix to finish the book. A postscript. P.S. Do you remember that when you used to, a long time ago, write letters? <laughs> like handwritten letters and you'd finish and you'd add a postscript, a P.S. Some other important, important note that didn't quite fit the body of the letter, but I, I want to end with this. So that's what our author does. He ends with an appendix or a postscript. And though it's somewhat obscure, the fact that he did it is significant. He is signaling to us, this is my final note. This is how I'm leaving it. I want you to see this at the end. So what I've entitled, B.S., A Glimmer of Hope. And that's all it is. It's a flicker. It's very subtle. It's just a whisper. It's suggestive of the future. Maybe, maybe not all is lost. That's how he ends. Now, before we come to that, we're going to read it here in a few moments. Before we come to that, though, on this last Sunday, it's our last Sunday in the book of Kings. Let's just take for a moment a step back, shall we? And reflect on the overall message of the book. Let's make sure one that we get 
What is this book about? It's been quite a fascinating book, hasn't it? I hope it's, it's gone beyond your expectations of how fascinating a book this is. Or to quote my son down here, Dad, this is way better than Romans. <laughs> that hurt. That hurt a little bit. But <laughs> it is a fascinating book. 54 Sundays. This is our 54th Sunday. Kings, 49 chapters, 40 different kings spanning 400 years in the history of Israel. What's the big point? What's the overall message? Now, I'm not going to review the whole book. Don't worry. I won't do that. But just just here's the big structure. Remember, we began with the first son of David. His name was Solomon, reigning as a wise and righteous king over the golden age of the nation. It didn't get any better than that. It was the height of the kingdom of Israel. It was an idyllic state. Peace, prosperity, unity. Included the building of the temple. The apex of the kingdom of God at this point. God now permanent dwelling in their midst. God taking his rest. Inviting the people to enter his rest. It felt like the fulfillment of his kingdom promises going to the nations. We even have the Queen of Sheba and the nations coming to look at this and to learn from Solomon. It just felt like those promises to be fulfilled were it was just around the corner. We were on the verge. And then it all went bad. It all began to unravel because of idolatry. Idolatry. That dominant feature in this book. Even Solomon. And so the nation is split into two. And 400 years and 40 kings later, it's all gone. It's in ruin. What are we supposed to learn? What's the message of this book? Well, here's the overall message. Something better must come to secure God's kingdom promises. That's what you're left with. Something better, better than this, must come to secure these kingdom promises. Those promises are still in force. God will not go back on his word. How will they come to pass? God's kingdom promises. You remember those kingdom promises? We began this book of Kings with reviewing those. Those promises to Abraham. God's redeemed people dwelling in his land, his place, under his rule and blessing with God himself in their midst. That's God's kingdom Promise, that's his plan. That's what he's working out in all of history. And Israel was a form of that kingdom. God's people living in the land of promise under the rule of his kings. God in their midst in the temple. And it did not work. It's all in ruins. It's all gone. That's the glaring message of this book at the end. Something better has to come. To secure those kingdom promises. That's where the book of Kings takes us. I'm just going to highlight 
these three features that we saw in the book of Kings that were dominant that underlined this overall message. Again, I, I will try my best not to belabor these and repreach the book, but here were, here's three big features just to remember as we close out the book of Kings. Number one, humanity's enslavement to idolatry. That's why something better must come because of humanity's enslavement to idolatry that was such a dominant and is such a dominant feature of the book isn't it seemed like almost every page we read about idolatry it was nauseating this book displays the human condition displays our condition because as we go through the book of kings and saw this idolatry we weren't talking about merely what we would call pagan gentile nations who had no revelation specifically of the true God. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God's covenant people. God's covenant people whom he redeemed out of Egypt, who he entered into covenant with, who he gave this great law. They were enslaved to idolatry. That's what's sad and depressing and revealing and instructive in this book. So by the end of the book... There is no distinction between God's people and the pagan nations. That's what you get at the end. They look exactly the same. Now behind the evil, because that's how the author portrays it, the evil of idolatry is the truth that Yahweh, Israel's God, is the one and only true God who demands exclusive devotion, exclusive worship. We saw that through the book, didn't we? He is the one and only true God. That was the point of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Who is God? Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. There's no other God. And he demands this exclusive worship as the only God for our good. To trust, to worship, to rely on any other gods is idolatry. That's what we mean by idolatry. Either to trust in, worship other so-called gods, or to try to worship the true God in the form of images is idolatry. All through this book. And that tendency is written so deep in our hearts. That's what this book shows. Even Solomon, that's how the book started, Ended in idolatry. And throughout Kings, we saw how extensive, how pervasive, how creative idolatry is. It is slavery. Enslavement to it. It's our condition. It's your condition. It's my condition. It's our natural fallen condition. Yes, today, today we don't have necessarily gods of wood and stone we don't have Baal or Asherah, but we have the more subtle idols of the heart. Money, sex, power, comfort, security, anything that surpasses God in our affections and our trust and our joy is idol. Martin Luther in his catechism, his larger catechism, 
defined it like this. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. Whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. The idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. And it's written very deep. So we see ourselves. We see a mirror here in Kings. Second feature. So we have humanity's enslavement to idolatry. That's why something better. Number two, the inadequacy of the law to deliver. That's what else we see from the book of Kings or learn. The inadequacy of the law to deliver. Now, when I say the law, that's shorthand for the covenant that God entered into with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. So sometimes we refer to it as the Mosaic covenant or the Sinai covenant. It's contained mostly in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the restatement of that great law or that great covenant. And that law, that covenant is inadequate to deliver from that enslavement to idolatry. All of Kings is written in view of that covenant. That covenant informs the content of the book of Kings, especially the book of Deuteronomy. They are called, the people of Israel are called to covenant loyalty. You express your love, your devotion, your worship of God by keeping the covenant and all of its stipulations. And the fundamental tenet of that covenant is exclusive worship of Yahweh. That's why idolatry is such an offense. Now, this law that I say is inadequate, the law is good. The law is good. The law is holy, we learned in Romans The law is an expression of God's character. It's an expression of who he is. And it's a a gift, an expression of his grace to his people. The law is good in all of those ways. God's word is good. The law is good. And yet the law has no inherent power to overcome humanity's enslavement to idolatry. That's what you learn in Kings as well as most of the Old Testament. It has no inherent power to overcome idolatry or to secure promises. The answer is not the law. When idolatrous hearts meet the perfect law of God, the result is condemnation and more enslavement, not rescue. The result is always condemnation and further enslavement. So that's what we see displayed in Kings. The prophets would bring the word of the covenant. That word is good. Oh, submission to that word is life. But what it lead to? Absolutely no change. Again, that's the end of the book of Kings. That's the message. We have that whole section of Elijah and Elisha. It's the center section of the book of Kings. The two great prophets. They don't get any greater than Elijah and Elisha. And what changed? Nothing changed. It's depressing. We had Josiah, perhaps the greatest king in the book of Kings. He was a torrent Torah observant king. Remember, they found the book of the law. They found it, rediscovered it, and he lived by it, and all those reforms. And what changed? Nothing changed. 
the law is inadequate to deliver. The answer is never the law. The law functions in God's sovereign purposes as an instrument of condemnation. As we learned in the book of Romans in chapter 3 where Paul says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that all the world might be guilty before God. That becomes the function of the law in the history of redemption. Only to further enslave and to condemn. So the law was inadequate to deliver. That's what we learn. And that includes the temple. Remember that old covenant. The heart of the old covenant was the tabernacle. And then now the permanent temple in the land. That temple. That symbol of the presence of God. Could never ultimately secure God's presence with his people. The temple is inadequate. That's why it's lying in a heap of ruins here. That can't be it. There must be something better. There must be a covenant that's better. There must be a temple, a presence of God that's better. And there is. Last, third, main feature of the book of Kings. And what I entitled the whole book. The need or the longing for a better king. The need or longing. Remember, that's the primary takeaway. I said, what's the overall message? Well, we need something better. We need a better king. That's the primary takeaway. That's the something better that we need. Because after all, not to overstate the obvious, this book is about kings. <laughs> kings. It's not just about the people of God. It's about rulers. It's about kings. God's purpose in his kingdom plan to have a king. Because as the king goes, so goes the people. That's what we learn all through the book. The focus was not so much on the people. It was always on the kings. As the king goes, so goes the people. We need a king. That's what this book is teaching us. We need a king. Even us, independent, proud, anti-king Americans. <laughs> We need a king. We don't think we need a king. We don't like kings. And I agree, maybe in this fallen world, our form of government is, is about as good as it gets, maybe. But, oh, not ultimately. <laughs> we don't want a democracy, ultimately. I don't want elections every four years in the age to come, right? We need a king. We need a king. A righteous, perfect, just Benevolent king to reign. We long for it. This book is supposed to create in us a longing for the right king. That's the takeaway of the book. One of the other prominent features in the book of Kings that's not on that list there that we saw over and over is the, the certainty and trustworthiness of God's word. I don't know how many times we saw that in the book of Kings. That his word comes to pass. Bank your life on it. God said it. His word comes to pass. You can trust it. We saw that over and over. In fact, I counted, in fact, I counted 17 times in the book of Kings where specifically it says, this happened to fulfill God's word. 
We saw it over and over, the trustworthiness of God's word. But almost always that word was a word of judgment. Almost every time. God's judgment, God's judgment is coming. Things aren't off track here, but God's judgment is coming. So we saw it over and over. His word is trustworthy. Judgment comes to pass. And that's what we saw last week as we ended in chapter 25. That's what's happened here. God's word has come to pass in his judgment. However, there's another word that's running all through the book of Kings. It's like a current. Maybe it's underneath the ground at times, this current, but it's all through the book of Kings and it's leading to this ocean. And that word is God's promise to David. That word informs this book. So now I know we saw it all the time. We referenced this promise to David, but let's see it one more time. Shall we just as we end the book of Kings? It's so important, not only to the book of Kings, but to the whole story and to Christmas in fact, almost everything we are celebrating at Christmas, all the what we know of Messiah and the king and David, it all comes from this promise. It's so tremendous. One of the greatest promises in all the Bible. Second Kings or Second Samuel chapter seven is where God gave this promise to David when he was ruling. I won't read all of it, but just highlight the parts there I'll put on the screen also when your day speaking to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, your seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That's first the temple. That's Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. My loving kindness shall not depart from him. And your house, verse 16, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. I can't overstate the importance of that promise. It's an amazing. All, all the promises up to this point, all the kind of streams of, of God's promises, all are really, they come together in this promise. God's kingdom is coming through the son of David. That promise runs all through the book of Kings. Even in the darkest, darkest moments of Kings, that promise is still there. So even when Solomon ends so badly and God comes in judgments and says, I'm going to rip, rip the kingdom away from you, Solomon, but I will leave one tribe for the sake of David. Three different times in the book of Kings, when the, the darkest days of the southern kingdom of Judah, when God brought judgment, three different times he says, I'm leaving a lamp for David, for David's sake. This infallible promise of this Davidic king is still on track. And it's to that word of promise that the postscript points, the little appendix. So finally, let's, let's get there to the last paragraph of the book because that's how our author wants to signal us at the end. Here's the note I want to leave with. Let me read it. I'll put it on the screen also. Again, it's rather unusual. Starting in verse 27, just these four verses. It says, Now, 
It came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that Evel, his name's really not evil, it's Evel <laughs> Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. The end. Now that's somewhat strange, isn't it? There's not much there. It's not this glowing promise, this word of hope. It's subtle. It's subtle. It's a glimmer. That's what I called it. Just a glimmer, a whisper of hope here. A whisper of hope. Are we reading too much into this? I don't think so. Why is it significant? Why? Again, it's kind of cryptic. It's what is this about? Why, why would this be significant? Well, just the very fact that the author includes this as his appendix, appendix is significant. His postscript. The fact that he does this. He didn't have to do this. He could have just ended it with, it's, it's over. And everybody's in exile. The end. But he doesn't. He reaches forward. 37 years. It's not just flowing with the narrative here at all. That's why I say it's, it's really an epilogue or a postscript here. Why does he do that? That's what we'd have to ask. Why does he conclude the book? Now, we admit it's, it's rather somewhat of a strange ending. But yet it's there. He dates it very specifically. Did you see it? Just like he did these other important events in chapter 24 and 25, he gives these very specific dates. He says, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month. So that's significant. <laughs> when you date it that exactly, this is something important he wants you to note. That's 561 B.C., by the way, if you're keeping track of the ge or genealogy there and the chronology. 561 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, that king, died in 562 B.C. And this is the next king. He's only going to last a couple years. But his policy is different. He comes to the throne. 37 years. So he's going forward into that exile, into that dark exile that we saw at the end. Going ahead 37 years into that exile and giving us a little picture, a little snapshot. That's all we get. That's significant. It's a very deliberate contrast with what happened to Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, which is interesting. Remember, we, we read Zedekiah replaced Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin was taken into exile. That's what we read. And then another king was put on the throne, a puppet king by Nebuchadnezzar. His name was Zedekiah. They changed his name to make it Zedekiah. And then he rebelled. And what we read last week of Zedekiah, what happened to him? He tried to flee, remember, and they rounded him up. Brought him for the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And in front of his eyes, he killed all of his offspring. He killed his sons. And then he gouged out the eyes of Zedekiah. 
and led him away. And we never hear another word. And we're thinking, that's, that's the Davidic line? That's the king? It's gone? Just like that? Oh, but our author says, oh, oh wait. 37 years, do you remember that other king? Jehoiachin. He just got a brief little mention. He only reigned three months. Jehoiachin, still there. You see how he's signaling? It's a contrast with what happened to Zedekiah. It's a contrast with what happened with them going into Egypt. It seems like everything is gone. Oh, but no. There's a ray of hope here. Did you notice in that text, he's twice called the king of Judah? Isn't that interesting? In verse 27, Jehoiachin, king of Judah. He released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. What's he highlighting? This is the king. So when he's giving you a glimpse 37 years into the future into exile, he's not just saying, oh, it's pretty hopeful some of the people have survived. It's the king. The king is alive. He's not only alive, he's flourishing. As much as you can flourish in exile. That's what he's pointing out. So this, this paragraph is very positive, isn't it? He means it to be very positive in contrast to the rest of the chapter. It's contrasted to all the destruction and exile. The king is still alive. So he, he gives all these positive comments. This new king of Babylon comes and he, it says literally, he lifts up the head of Jehoiachin. He lifts his head up. That is, he restores him like back in Joseph's time. Remember Joseph in prison. The lifting up the head. He restores him. Speaks kindly. He sets his throne. He recognizes him as a king, some kind of throne. And he gets special treatment above all the other exiled kings. Jehoiachin, first. And he's provided for. He changes, what an image. He changes his prison clothes. He's given meals in the presence of the king. A regular allowance all the days of his life. And he's just leaving it very open-ended. There's hope. Now, just an interesting historical note here. I can't resist these. They discovered what are now called the Jehoiachin ration tablets. There's a picture there for you. This isn't at the British Museum, actually. It's, it's in Berlin. That's why that little description there is in German. You can't probably quite read that. But they discovered the, in the ruins of Babylon, this is the early 1900s, they discovered these tablets, about four of these tablets um, that give the account in Babylon in captivity of the rations, the food rations and oil rations they would give. And three times on these four tablets, Jehoiachin, King Jehoiachin, do you know that? Is mentioned, and his rations are larger than anyone else's rations on those tablets. So, this really happened. They keep saying this. This is real history. This is real history. There it is. So just one more of those archaeological notes that just confirm the historical reliability of our Bible. Now, this is a glimmer of hope. So let me just give you that. What glimmer, what glimmer of hope? Well, I've already mentioned it, but let's make it clear. It's a subtle, subtle hint that God's promise to David remains in force even after judgment. Even after catastrophic judgment has happened. As I said, everything is gone. There is no more remnant even in the land. Temple gone, Jerusalem gone, nation gone, everything's gone. But there he is, the Davidic king, still alive and recognized. It's a sign of life. It's a sign of hope. That's what this points to. That's, that's how the author wants us 
locked in. That's the note he pulls out here just to say, oh, oh, P.S. It's not all over. (laughs) There's still a, a Davidic king. Remember, he started the book in a strange way. If you remember way back to the beginning of this book, 55, whatever Sundays ago, he started that way with David on his deathbed. Remember trying to get warm? Couldn't get him warm. (laughs) Give him a human water bottle to get him warm, right, in that story. And the big question is, who's going to succeed David? And now at the end, there's a glimpse of a Davidic king. That's important. All is not lost. God's word of promise, that unfailable promise, will come to pass. Just like his word of judgment came to pass, his word of promise will come to pass. Exile, exile is not the last word. But it also teaches us that this future salvation, this future restoration will come through exile and judgment. It will come through exile and judgment. And it will somehow include us, the nations. Though this is dismal and depressing, this book, and everything seems to be gone at the end, Again, when we take the biggest step back and we look at God's unfolding plan, it's not off track. It's not off track. God is purposing, even in the exile and judgment of his people. Things are unfolding according to his plan. And his plan is exile. His plan is judgment of his people. And that's the way that salvation will ultimately come. There's no remnant, as I said, in the land. There's no hope that, well, at least there's a remnant. Maybe that. No, it's all gone. Salvation has to come through exile. The Davidic king is not in the land. He's in Babylon. He's in exile. Whatever salvation is coming, he's got to come through exile. And it's just part of this bigger story that we've seen all through the Bible that God's salvation comes through judgment. It always comes through judgment. Normally, he's rescuing his people as he judges their enemies here his judgment has fallen upon his own people because in his judgment god is vindicated as god his justice his name and it's in that judgment that he brings salvation so although this is bleak and it's dark yet there's this ray of hope because salvation will come through this very judgment Hmm. how will this come about for israel that's the question Somehow, somehow their exile, their judgment will result in salvation and the salvation of the nations. Now, that's the rest of the story. We don't, we don't have time this morning to trace out the details of the rest of the story. That's what the rest of the Bible is for. And Lord willing, in our days and weeks and years to come, we'll just see more of this tremendous plan of God, how it unfolds. But let's finish with at least seeing the king who brings it to pass. If this book is about longing for a better king, well, let's end with that. Let's see the better king, the final better king. This glimmer of hope that we have here at the end of the book of Kings is magnified in the prophets. The prophets, we've seen some of these prophets, they write in the same same general time frame as the decline and exile of Israel and Judah. It's when the prophets are writing, speaking. And those prophets 
Yes, they come to announce that this judgment of exile is coming. That's what a lot of the prophets are about. Exile is coming, judgment's coming. But they also see beyond that judgment to future salvation, to future hope. And the key, as you read the prophets, the key to that future salvation and future hope is a new David. A new king. Who's like David, who's better than David, but he's just called David. It's a new David. Now, there are many, many, many of those type of texts, but let's let's end with the one that's perhaps most familiar and the most quoted at Christmas, shall we? Isaiah chapter nine. We've looked at this in the past, but let's let's end on this note. If you have your Bible, you, you can turn there to Isaiah nine or I will also put it on the screen for us here. Isaiah, again, writes 700 B.C. It's during the decline of Israel and Judah predicting their judgment, their exiles coming. But Isaiah, even in these early chapters, sees beyond this darkness to deliverance. So I come here because we know this text, because it will be read at Christmas. We'll read it next week again. It's so good, and it should be read at Christmas as he announces this future hope. Just enjoy it as we read it. Verse 2, he's just told how how they're going to be exiled. Judgment's coming. It's gloom. It's dark. But then he just gives this tremendous hope. The people who walk in darkness, that's exile, will see a great light. Light's always an image of salvation. They'll see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, again, that's exile. The light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Let's just be the exceeding gladness of their salvation. That's not true right now. Then he gives three reasons why this deliverance, this joy is coming. Four. You start with four. Four. See him. Four. You will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. You're going to break this, this exile. They've been taken in exile. You're going to break the rod of their oppressor for every... Then he gives warfare image like the Assyrian warrior and the Babylonian warrior, every boot of the booted warrior and battle tumult. And the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning. All the weapons of warfare that they use will be fuel for the fire, he says. Well, how's that going to happen? How's that going to come about? Verse 6, last reason, fundamental reason. Four, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. It's, It's really dramatic. We're not expecting that. A child? A child is going to be born, and that's the key to our rescue. Yep. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name, we sang some of this this morning, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Those are all images of king, of a king. Then verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
on the throne of David. There it is. There's that promise. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. This is the final one. The zeal of Yahweh Sabaoth will accomplish this. What a tremendous promise. As he looks through the darkness of exile to their exceeding glad joy of deliverance, all affected by a child who will be born. The way that's structured means in history, this child will be born. And he's picking up. We don't, we don't have the, the advantage of the rest of Isaiah and what he said before, but he's been talking about a child. children here who will be born are signs of God's deliverance. And he'd already said in chapter 7 about a sign that a virgin will be with child and you shall name him Emmanuel, God with us. That will be the sign of my deliverance. And now we, we learn who that child is. And he is not simply a sign that God is with us. He is God is with us. That's what's unique about, that's what's breathtaking about this this chapter. Now we, last Christmas, I think we, we've spent the whole time on this chapter. You want to hear it in more detail. But the way he names this child is just beyond belief. It's incomprehensible. That's what he says. This child will be called wonder, incomprehensible counselor. So he gives all these attributes of what a king will be like. A king was to be the counselor, the one who provided wisdom, guidance for the people. The king was mighty. He was a, he was a warrior. He, he led the people. The king was a father figure to the people as he represented God. The king was a prince, obviously. But to all of those names, he attaches this attribution of deity. These, these words used only for God, that he is a wonder, he's incomprehensible. He is El Gabor, he's mighty God. He's eternal. Father, he is the prince of shalom, peace ultimately. So this child is no mere child. He is the final one of David. So what's, what's hinted at here, that this unique child, this final son of David, will be the deliverer, then is made explicit as we open the pages of the New Testament. So let's do that as we finish and head to Christmas here this week. Matthew chapter 1, as we end. Matthew 1, verse 1. As the New Testament dawns, as I said, we can't trace all the history between exile and what happened. This is 700 years after Isaiah wrote. Verse 1. What's the first statement in the New Testament? What's it say? The book of the origins, the Genesis, the origins of Jesus, Messiah, the son of David. That's what you need to know. That's who's here. The son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the son of David. And then he gives the genealogy that we usually just kind of rush right through in our Bible reading. Check it off. Oh, but linger there, if you dare. Linger over the genealogy. I'm not going to linger here too long this morning, but it's he just trace. He starts with Abraham, and he's tracing it all, and then he traces it down to David, and because the central figure is David, because the Davidic king has come, so he structures it in such a way to highlight David. So he comes all the way down from Abraham there to to David, right? And then verse six, it picks up David, 
to David. And if you want a review of the book of Kings in the south, here it is. To David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. To Solomon was born Rehoboam, to Rehoboam, Abijah, to Abijah, Asa. You remember these guys? We read them all. To Asa, to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, to Jehoshaphat, Jerome, to Jerome, Uzziah, to Uzziah was born Jotham, to Jotham, Ahaz, to Ahaz, Hezekiah, to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, to Manasseh, Ammon, to Ammon, Josiah, to Josiah was born Jeconiah. That's just the other word for Jehoiachin. That's Jehoiachin there. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's how Kings ends. And we say, whoa. Remember I said Jehoiachin's important. Yeah. How's, where does it go from there? Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, his name, was born Shealtiel. To Shealtiel, Zerubbabel. And guess where that goes? Right to Jesus. Right. <laughs> so that little postscript, pretty significant. <laughs> Because he's in the line here. The promise continues. And the way that Matthew structures this, isn't it interesting that he goes from uh, Abraham to David, then David to the exile, and then exile to Jesus, and they never get out of exile. That's not his point. He, he never talks about when the, the remnant returns to the land. Not his focus, because for him, they're still in exile. These people of God. But now the king has come. Verse 16, to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Do you see how he worded that? He broke the pattern, didn't he? He didn't say, and to Jacob was born Joseph, and to Joseph was born Jesus. Did you expect? No, he throws a little curve there. He says, and to Joseph was the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. How does he do that? That's because of what he says next. Because the way this son of David comes is unlike any other son of David. This is the son of Isaiah 9. Well, how's he come? Verse 18. Here's the Christmas story. We're going to read Luke next week, so let's just look at Matthew here. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He's not the biological child of Joseph. He's the legal child. He's adopted. He's a legal child of Joseph in the line because his conception is of the Holy Spirit. It's just, we say, wow, that's, there's nothing like that. This miraculous conception yeah. of the Holy Spirit, we don't know how, the details. It's simply highlighting that this conception is the direct result of the creative work of the Spirit of God. The direct creation of the Spirit of God in the womb of Mary. Who will be fully man. Fully man. Comes as that child. And yet unique. Uniquely the Son of God. Every Davidic king was the Son of God. 
they were adopted, so to speak, as sons because they represented the father. But this son, this one will be uniquely the son of God. And then he just goes on to say, and she will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name. And we might think, well, Emmanuel, of course. No, Jesus. Yahweh saves. Yeshua. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Behold, that's Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. He is God with us in this most unique way as God in the flesh. But his name is Jesus because the way God is with us is to save. It's the extension of God's name. Yahweh, Yahweh saves. Josiah, Joshua, Yeshua. Jesus, because that's what he's come to do. Not deliver from Babylon and exile that way. Not to overthrow the foreign oppressor, but to save us from our sins. Because that's the deliverance his people need, we need. Because remember the enslavement to idolatry. And we saw all those kings and none of them, none of them could grant this deliverance. But this king can. Who will die for our sin. That's why he comes as a man. To rescue, to give us life. To overcome the hard heart of idolatry. And to give us a heart of flesh and the newness of life. That's Christmas. It all comes in Christ. Do you know this Savior? Is He your Savior? Does your soul magnify the Lord this Christmas because of what He has done in Christ? Maybe so as we enter into this Christmas week. Let's pray. We're going to sing that new song we learned earlier. Sing it again and magnify the Lord with our soul. Oh, Father, thank you for just a glimpse of the unfailing nature of your promise Through the darkest and bleakest of times, your promise is true. And it is here in Jesus, our Savior. Our soul magnifies you. Give us grace throughout this season to magnify you. The greatness of the gift of Jesus. The perfect King, the perfect Savior in whom all our hope rests. And to know that your promise, that He is coming again. That there is life to come is real. It's trustworthy. May we bank on it today. We ask in Jesus' name.